Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the InfraDig podcast. Today we're looking at a subject that has caused me quite a lot of consternation over the years. Carbon capture and storage. I'm going to be honest, I've never been particularly convinced by this technology and I'm hoping to be won over by today's guest. So let's get on with the introductions. Me, I'm Angus Leslie Melville, Editorial Director of IJ Global Infrastructure Journal. I have with me Dan Carter, and he is President of Decarbonisation at Wood. Dan, welcome to InfraDig. Thanks, uh, Angus. Great to meet you and uh, nice to have the opportunity to discuss. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Now, Dan, from what I gather, you advise clients across a range of sectors on how to reduce emissions from carbon intensive assets while also looking into opportunities for integration of alternative energy vectors. Okay, what does that all mean? Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and the role you play at Wood, uh, bearing in mind that brevity, well, no, it's an art form. Dan, over to you. No problem, Angus. So start off with myself, you know, I'm a, a chemical engineer by background with a, a strong consulting background in techno-economic studies. So really helping our clients to plan their capital expenditure and pathway for development of their business. Now, my role within Wood as president of decarbonisation is really to bring together all of the capabilities we have within the organisation to help our clients meet their carbon reduction goals. And those could be capabilities in our engineering sectors, digital delivery, project delivery, etc., that help to realise those roadmaps. Those roadmaps are really core to that development. So across our core end market sectors, so through oil and gas, um, materials production, so say through refining, petrochemicals, mining or life sciences, we're really working to help our clients meet their carbon reduction or their net zero goals. And that works by looking at the range of options available to them to reduce the carbon intensity of their industries and then helping to plan and deploy those technologies or opportunities each of their assets. And that can cover everything from you know, our main subject of today, carbon capture and storage, through to integration of renewables, hydrogen as an alternative fuel source, or even short-term solutions like improving energy efficiency. Okay, right. Okay, we all know who you are now, and I would hope that our listen listeners are already aware of Wood as an organisation. Um, but we're here to speak primarily about carbon capture and storage, CCS. Um, carbon, it's all we ever hear about these days in the battle to achieve net zero. And CCS is believed by many to be one of the tools in the toolkit to achieve a cleaner world. That's all a bit simplistic, isn't it now? Um, let's just set the scene by running through this. And let's be honest, it's rather a complex technology. Can you explain how the hell does CCS work? And while you're about it, can you explain for the benefit of the listener, what is the difference between CCS and CCUS, the difference between carbon capture and storage and its first cousin, carbon capture, utilisation and storage? No problem at all, Angus. I think I would disagree that, that CCS is a complex technology and as a first point of call, and I'll explain why a little bit later. But really, it's an amalgamation of technologies. So you take that acronym, CCS, carbon capture and storage, you're talking about the full value chain of capturing carbon, then transporting it, and then sequestering it in a store for long-term storage. If we start off with the carbon capture part, 
Yeah, carbon capture technology has actually been around for a long time. We've been removing CO2 from the natural gas that we consume for decades now because it's treated as an impurity. Those carbon capture processes have three main forms, either through cryogenic distillation, amine absorption or membrane separation. By far the most common of those is amine absorption. And this is a process that's very commonly used not just by carbon capture, but also for removing other impurities in the oil and gas sector. For example, removing hydrogen sulfide gas as well. So it's very well understood. As of today, there are about 40 commercial scale carbon capture facilities operating around the globe, capturing more than 45 million tonnes of CO2 a year. However, compared to the gigatons of storage we require in order to meet our net zero goals, that's just a drop in the ocean in terms of the rollout of that technology in those facilities. So can you tell us uh, what's the difference between CCS and CCUS? So CCUS, the main difference is rather than storing that carbon, that CO2, we actually then use it for something. We transform it to another product. There are some technologies today that look to use CO2. For example, CO2 can be combined with hydrogen to produce syngas, and that's what we call the circular carbon economy, where you're capturing the CO2 and then we're using it. However, there isn't really a very large scale consumer for CO2 utilization as we stand today. And this CO2 is a combustion project, it actually takes a lot of energy to convert that to something else. So it really is the holy grail of carbon utilisation to discover a technology that will make that work commercially moving into the future. Oh, why does this feel like hydrogen to me all of a sudden? It's like, uh, <laughs> build it and they will come. You know, technology, we're all counting on. Look, who am I to criticise? I, I look at um, uh, electric vehicles and I go, um, Personally, I'd hold off a bit and wait for solid-state batteries to come through. I think it's there's going to be game-changing technology advancements, and there is so much going on in this space. But you're on a wish and a prayer, aren't you? Well, I think the, the real point there is, in order for there to be game-changing technology, we have to start somewhere. So we have to actually start with deploying carbon capture and storage at scale to be able to learn from those facilities to develop the next range of absorbents to look for other opportunities for CO2 utilisation. You know, if we wait for that early grail to arrive, then we won't ever pass go in terms of our starting point. So this is really where we are in terms of the carbon capture and storage industry today, where we've made a start, but that rapid scale up and progression was really necessary in order to learn and to drive down the overall costs of CO2 capture and storage. Mm. Okay, fair and fair enough. I, I suppose it, it's just when you look at these things and you think about other technologies and other, say, energy sources, and you look at solar panels, you go, well, yeah, of course it makes sense. And wind, but you know, Don Quixote even had a view on that. Um, yeah. it, it all makes sense, but this we, we are relying on advancements for everything you're talking about to actually work. But you've got to start somewhere. Uh, very, very similarly, if you go back a couple of decades on solar panels, or maybe you can go back into the more recent past for wind turbines, the cost of you know, producing a megawatt of electricity from a wind turbine farm has come down significantly over the last decade as we started to deploy that technology more and more. Um, so I think there's a case there for that evolution in terms of technology readiness of some of these solutions. 
But there's also a case around practicality as well. So you, you mentioned hydrogen earlier on. Now, if we were to refuel all the industry we use today with hydrogen rather than using um, fossil fuel related sources through oil and gas, the investment in there would be trillions upon trillions of dollars. What CCS enables us to do is to continue to use the energy vectors that we have today and decarbonize those while we are investing in alternative sources of energy for the longer term future that will ultimately displace fossil fuels. You know, at, at times when, when I have discussions like this, I always think of a dear friend who sadly passed away not so long ago, uh, Manfred Brown, who I think actually had um, rather similar uh, qualifications to yourself as well. And whenever I discussed hydrogen with him, he, he always just winced. But uh, that, that's that's another matter entirely. He, he was just scared by the notion. But <laughs> let's let's move it on. Um, to date, there's been a lot of talk about CCS and its potential. Um, let's take a look at the history of CCS in the UK. I can't help but think back to projects that have been in and out of the news over the years, most of them ending up being scrapped. But maybe I'm being led by past experience and the likes of, say, just picking one at random, the White Rose Project in Yorkshire that Richard Simon Lewis was so heavily involved in. Am I right to be sceptical? To, to, to my mind, there's a lot of PR about CCS, but when it comes to the crunch, it's, it's all a bit of a damp squib. So with that in mind, what, to your mind, is the role that CCS will play in global energy transition? So I think the, the scepticism is well-founded. You know, as an organisation within Void, we've been involved in carbon capture and storage projects for more than four decades now, and and personally for half of that. So we have the scars of projects like White Rose, Peterhead in the UK, and a number of others overseas that ultimately were reliant purely on government funding that didn't go ahead. Now, five years ago, I may have shared the same view, but what we started to see now is sustained commitment towards the deployment of CCS at scale, not just in the UK, but across a number of different geographies. There's already so I think CCS is absolutely critical to decarbonize the energy systems we use today. So there is no realization of the net zero goals without carbon capture and storage as part of that of that puzzle. If we look at what's going on, so you know, in the UK, we've got a lot of government investment in carbon capture projects. That's led to things like the track one and two cluster projects centered around Hynet in the Northwest, net zero Teesside. Um, and the recently announced Track 2 funded projects for Viking and, and, and Acorn up near the St Fergus gas terminal in Scotland. So we have some fundamental hubs that will provide the infrastructure to be able to capture, transport and ultimately support CO2. Some of the projects that we're working on within Wood as well provide the next level of organisational, the next level of emitters, those smaller companies that don't emit so much CO2, with the infrastructure they can then tie into to be able to realise their own CO2 capture ambitions. We've also got policy, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, where you can claim up to $85 a tonne tax credit for CO2 storage, um, slightly less if you utilise it, which is an interesting dimension. European trading scheme for CO2, which I think today is just shy of about 89 euros a tonne. Now, these incentives are starting to get to the level where they will pay for the investment required in that CO2 capture and storage value chain. That's one part of the dimension in investing 
than realising CO2 as a technology. You know, ultimately, CO2 has to have a value. Absolutely. Okay, so look, it's coming across loud and clear, clear, clear to me. You're a convert to CCS. Really not too surprising given the role you play, Edward. <laughs> um, how about you win us over with some hard facts? You started mentioning some, but what projects are you working on in the CCS space? So, um, yeah, we're in wood. We've now been involved in more than 175 CO2 capture projects globally at various phases of development, and that represents more than 50% of the world's planned projects. To give some specific examples, you know, in the UK, we've been involved in the Humber Zero cluster, which is part of Viking CCS, as I mentioned a moment ago. That's capturing carbon from the um, the Vitol Immingham combined heat and power plant and the Philips 66 refinery next door. Ultimately, that will reduce CO2 emissions by 8 million tonnes per year. We're also still working on Net Zero Teesside, also one of those cluster projects for the UK um, in a project management capacity, supporting the development and delivery of that project with BP. On the transportation side, we've got a very interesting project in Canada at the moment, the Pathways Alliance, which is a 400 kilometre CO2 pipeline that links together Canada's six largest oil sands producers to provide the infrastructure to capture CO2 from probably one of the most CO2 intensive industries that we've got in the world. In the Middle East, we're working on a particular project that will expand the world's current CCS capacity by 25%. So very significant in terms of size and scale and a number of capture projects that sit alongside that. In the US as well, we're taking advantage of some of the funding mechanisms that have been developed by the Department of Energy. Uh, We've been supporting some of our clients with applications for DOE funding, both for that traditional alien absorption based CCS, but also for direct air capture. And some of those uh, applications have recently been successful. I know I'm not giving you too many specific client names, but that's quite hard given the the fact that a lot of these projects are still competing for various funding mechanisms and permit applications. Uh, Somewhere I can though, tech resources, Um, again in Canada, we're working with a novel technology to capture CO2 from sulfide ores during a smelting process, really a first of a kind technology that will help to reduce CO2 emissions in the metals and minerals sector. And then back in the UK as well, we've also been working with Sea Capture, an emerging technology provider who have a very novel solvent that they think can drive down the cost of CO2 capture significantly to actually deliver CO2 test rigs into some of the hard to abate sectors, particularly for cement, energy from waste and glass manufacturing industries. So not only are we starting to see large scale deployment of traditional technology, so that aiming based absorption technology, we're also working at the forefront of some emerging technologies that will help us to reduce that cost of CO2 capture and drive the industry forward at further scale moving into the future. Okay, um, in the UK, we're starting to see a lot of regulatory developments to accelerate the pace of CCS projects. Uh, are you seeing this in other regions? Clearly in, North, in the US, they've got the IRA, which is uh, supporting that. Um, and the Middle East, you say they're going to be responsible for 25% of um, CCS um, in the blink of an eye. Impressive. Um, what parts of the world do you sort of tip for the top as, um, you know, the pop pickers, CCS um, leaders for the for the year? 
so uh, where we're seeing the most activity you know, in, in Europe, it's the UK and Norway, which is driven by access to CO2 stores and infrastructure in the North Sea. Um, North America, so both the US and Canada, also high levels of activity in the Middle East. And we're starting to see some emerging opportunities in Southeast Asia as well. The main drivers behind that at the moment are those policy incentives, you know, those those carrots that are being provided through tax incentives or CapEx funding. The interesting part though is we're also starting to see mechanisms looking more to the future and how CO2 trading will work to prevent offshoring of the problem as well. So in the European Union, we have the developing legislation around the CBAMs or the carbon border adjustment mechanisms. What I really like about those adjustment mechanisms, because they set a domestic level for CO2 production at which any imported product will be charged an additional tariff, they're not only driving importers to reduce the CO2 intensity of those specific products, but they're also going to drive domestic producers to reduce CO2 intensity in order to reduce the benchmark. So there's almost a mechanism there that leads to trading, but the costs of that will ultimately be passed on through the value chain. The holy grail has always been a global underpinning of a common carbon price. Yeah, and that's been the goal of um, yeah, COP, the Conference of the Parties, for quite a number of years now, but has a lot of geopolitical implications around that. So I, I think that probably will remain a holy grail for some time. Hence why, going back to that statement, carbon has a value, the CBAMs, the tax incentives, the capex incentives are key to driving this industry in the short to medium term. So many religious relics out there that we need to find. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, let's let's bring this down to brass tacks. Um, and you know, you you, you have mentioned um, some of the people who are um, ponying up ponying up cash to make this happen. Where do you see early stage capital coming for from? for CCS projects. And shouldn't that just be the oil and gas majors, you know, those dirty dogs? Well, the, the oil and gas majors are really looking to deliver a lot of cash into the CCS industry. Now, within Wood, our top five clients have pledged more than 100 billion in capital to develop their decarbonisation programmes, of which a big chunk of that is related to carbon capture and storage. Then you come into the government challenge, Government funding should be there to seed the industry. Within the emerging technology space as well, we're also seeing lots of interest from equity funds. You know, equity funds who are interested in looking at the next generation of tech that will drive down those costs of capture and really drive you know, commercial delivery models for carbon capture and storage that are revenue generating moving forward. Okay. Here's a final question for you. What keeps you awake at night when it comes to CCS? Now, to my mind, that would be leaks. Uh, what's the guarantee that having sequestered the carbon underground, it's going to stay there? So, Dan, what keeps you awake at night, gives you nightmares, gives you the heebie-jeebies? It's a, it's a really good question. Like, you know, just, just to address that comment around leaks as well, you know, just like it is in the oil and gas industry or other transportation networks, yeah, monitoring, auditing, and integrity management of CO2 pipelines and storage reservoirs is absolutely key to making sure it stays there. Given the oil and gas has been there for 
decades, if not centuries, that that shouldn't be too much of a problem. But it needs the appropriate it didn't have a plug. It didn't have a plug <laughs> holding it in there. I mean, you're putting a plug on it. Surely, surely, it, it had a plug a until we drew a hole. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> quite an impressive one. But that's where the monitoring and integrity management comes into play, right? Understanding how CO2 as a fluid behaves in those systems and being able to make sure it stays sequestered. In terms of what keeps me awake, you know, I, I think the bigger challenge isn't CCS, but it's actually the problem that CCS is part of the solution to address. You know, if you look around the world just recently, we've seen the impacts of global warming, stream weather events, wildfires across multiple different continents. And really, you know, increasing the pace of decarbonisation in general and CCS as part of that is absolutely critical to minimise those impacts we're starting to see and make sure it doesn't get too much worse moving forward. So I think the consequences of doing nothing are far more severe than the consequences of investing in the solutions. Yeah, quite. I went up to Scotland and got sunburn. It was ridiculous. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, well, yeah, so my fears of um, carbon bubbling through the sea and uh, polluting the world in a most magnificent manner, maybe they're unsourced there. I, sh I shouldn't lose sleep over that, huh? No, I think you're, you're probably quite safe there. Excellent. Well, I hope I'm not in a ferry going over it at the time if it does happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that rounds it off nicely, Dan. Um, you you sleep um, you sleep sound at night and you have confidence in the CCS technology. I think it's been really interesting to hear your views. I think um, all listeners will be a little bit more informed now. Um, I did play the part of the devil's advocate, um, but um, I have to admit, experience over the years has led me to rather doubt its progress. But um, maybe I need to get up with the curve and. Uh, I, I, my knowledge is clearly tracking where the industry's at and developments are moving so fast that uh, it's it's something that's going to make an impact and make an impact going forward. Oh yeah, the last comment is absolutely right. Things are moving very, very quickly in the CCS market at the moment, the same as they are in areas like hydrogen and, and renewables development. So part of the challenge in my role and for us at Wood is to be able to keep a pace with that and make sure we continue to develop and repurpose the capabilities to support that challenge. There you go. You've made a convert of me. Maybe that's, maybe that's what inferencing should be. Get, turn, turn me into a convert into believing everything <laughs> I'm told. Um, <laughs> Dan Carter from Wood, thank you so much for taking time to join us on Inferdig. It's been very interesting. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much, Jason. Angus. <laughs> That's all right. I answer to a lot of things, including Hamish. <laughs> Hamish as well. <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, and now, all that is left for me to say is to express an extreme desire that you, our dear listener, has found this to be anything but in for a dig. <laughs>